This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. With me, Pastor Eric Flickinger. Eric, thanks for being here today. Great to be here again. So what's Line Upon Line all about? Line Upon Line is where we take your Bible questions and give you, if they can be found, biblical answers. So we get a wide range of questions, and today is pretty much like usual. Yes, absolutely. Good questions, a wide range of questions, and we'd like to get your question. If it's occurred to you, it's probably occurred to somebody else. So write us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Email lineuponline at iiw.org, and we'll do our best to give you a Bible answer for your Bible questions. And so, Eric, here's our first question. It comes from Stuart, who asks, explain until the day of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1 and verse 6. All right, well, let's take a look at Philippians 1 verse 6 and see what it says. In Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul writes, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it or perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what is that day of Jesus Christ? Let's take a look at several other times in the Bible, even right here in Philippians, where that phrase is used again. We can drop down to verse number 10. And in verse 10, Paul says that you may prove the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You drop down just a little bit further to chapter 2 and verse number 16. And in chapter 2, verse number 16, again, Paul says, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So Paul is encouraging us to, to move forward, to allow Christ to work in our lives until the day of Christ. Well, what's going to happen in the day of Christ? Uh, why don't we take a look at Acts chapter 2 and verse number 20. He says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So what does it mean when it says until the day of Jesus Christ? Uh, basically, it means until the day when Jesus Christ returns. So in our lives, Christ is going to be working continually, if we will allow him to, to help mold and shape us into the people he wants us to be for his returning. And we really want to remember how powerful this promise is, being confident of this thing, the Bible says, that he who has begun a good work in you, this is explaining how salvation works, Jesus starts that work in your life, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we've kind of analyzed a little bit what the phrase means, but let's not make the mistake of losing the big picture here. Really the main point is that Jesus starts the work in your life, and if you'll allow him to do so, he will finish that work, and it's one of the great, great promises of the Bible. I appreciate the question. I have another one for you here, and it's from Fernando, and he says, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, there will be false Christs and false prophets before his return. This is interesting. Why aren't there more people talking about this, Fernando asks. Well, I don't know if we can give a, a specific answer for why more people aren't talking about it. There's a lot of people not talking about a lot of things that the That's Bible has sure. to say. But That's if right. you look at society, there, are, there have been and there continue to be people who claim to be Jesus and leading an awful lot of people astray. And if there are people claiming to be Jesus, there's a whole lot more who would fall under that category of false prophets. That's for sure. 
You know, I would say, Fernando, there probably are a fair amount of people who are talking about this, maybe not where you are. And as Eric said, there are a lot of questions that Christianity in general seems to be neglecting. Here's the thing. I want to encourage you, Fernando, to read the Word of God and be sure that you are following not a false Christ or a false prophet, but Jesus Christ and the prophets that uh, he has anointed with the gift of prophecy, particularly found in the Bible. Follow the Word of God. Um, Others will do what they do, but as for me and you, we want to be faithful to God where we are. What's next? We've got another question. This one, interestingly enough, is a question from Eric. Eric. And Eric would like to know, is trading in the stock market and foreign exchange the same as gambling? Yeah, it may be. It, it probably is for some people. What's gambling? Gambling is a game of chance where you have no control over the outcome and you hope an outcome is going to go this way or that and, and it costs you money. You, you wage your money on this and you say that the, the coin is going to turn over heads or tails or the dice is going to turn on number six or horse number seven is going to win the race. You have no control over the outcome. You can, in some of these events, you can, um, you can study. Uh, some horses are in form and some horses are out of form. But when you're rolling a dice on a roulette wheel or rolling, or not, that's not a dice, it's a ball on a roulette wheel, or when you're playing blackjack and it's all about what card is likely to turn over next, 999 times out of 1,000, it's just random and you have absolutely no control over that. That's gambling. Investing in the stock market could be like that, but it's different. You see, when you invest in the stock market, you are actually buying shares in, you are buying part ownership in a company. You are one of the owners of the company in which you buy shares. Foreign exchange trading, you're able to look at forecasts and based on what's happened in prior history, looking at the circumstances surrounding the trade, you can have a pretty good idea as to where things are going. If you're astute, you very often can be quite okay with that. Risk and gambling is not the same thing. If you buy a house, you hope that it will appreciate in value. If it declines in value, That was the risk that you assumed in buying the house, and it wasn't really what you'd call a gamble. So you could be really, mm, you could could be reckless in the way that you invest in the stock market, and yeah, you could call it gambling. But if you are investing for the purpose of uh, earning money, there's nothing wrong with that. It was Jesus who said, here, here's, here's five talents, I want you to get five more. It's wise if you've got money to invest somewhere where you're going to get a return. If you do that sensibly, uh, and, and you follow certain, well, I'm going to use that word again, sensible or wise principles, it's okay. God does not frown on that at all. Simply be careful in your approach. All right, we've got another question here, and this one comes from James. And James asks the question, will God forgive child murderers? Well, that's a terrible sin that you've asked about. The answer is clear. Now, I imagine that if somebody has lost a child in these circumstances, it it, it might be a really delicate subject, but I know people who have had children murdered and they've been able by the grace of God to extend forgiveness to the murderer. And God certainly can. Can child murderers be forgiven? I'll read you one verse of the Bible and then let you decide. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, He will forgive. It does not say, unless that sin is the murder of a child. Please don't think that by, by, by talking about this, we're diminishing the heinousness of the act of murder and the brutality of child murder. We're not. What this suggests is that because we've all sinned, maybe we've not all done something quite as despicable as that, but we've all sinned against God. And the Bible says that God is able to forgive us. And I think, I think it gives us hope knowing that God is even prepared to forgive people like this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you find in the Bible that God has forgiven people for terrible crimes, for murder, for, for adultery, and so forth. Uh, he is a forgiving God if we are willing to come to him and to ask him sincerely and honestly for that forgiveness. His promise is he will forgive. There was a woman taken in adultery. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Rahab was an harlot, the Bible says, and she ended up in Jesus' family tree. David did some despicable things. Uh, there were kings who were murderers. David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. Moses is in heaven right now. So, yeah, God can forgive murder, even the murder of a child. It's a horrible thing, even difficult to talk about. But what's not difficult to talk about is the wondrous thing called grace, that God is forgiving and God is good and God can forgive you. God can forgive me. We have a lot to be thankful for. All right, here's a question. The question is from Stephanie. How do I know what the will of God is for me? Where do I find it? Uh, how do you find the will of God? This is a question that I think many people ask themselves many times a day, and if they shouldn't, perhaps they should. Uh, we ought to consult with God before we make any real decisions in our lives. So how can we find God's will? Uh, the first step is to, to simply find out what he likes and what he dislikes. Now, we could probably start and paint with broad strokes with the commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, keep, keep my, my commandments. commandments. So sure. is it God's will for us to break one of the Ten Commandments? I think the, the answer can be easily underscored, no, absolutely not. If you're, the decision you're trying to make involves breaking one of the commandments, God's will is not for you to break one of those commandments. Now, Amen. Not everything that we do in life can we easily let fall under one of those Ten Commandments. Uh, they may fall under there, but it might take a little mental gymnastics to get there. But let me jump in. Stephanie's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm single and 24 years old. Uh, she didn't say that, but I'm saying, and I want to know whether I should marry this person or that person. God certainly has a will here. How do I find that will? Take a look at what God, how God instructed or guided people in the Bible who were in similar situations. What are the characteristics that you should look for in a spouse? Is the person that you're considering a Bible-believing Christian? Or are they just a good person, a moral individual, but they don't really love Jesus? They haven't dedicated their life to God? Uh, is that the type of person that you want to marry? There's a lot of different criteria that you, can, that you should look at in choosing a spouse, go back to the Bible and find similar stories and you'll begin to see how God guides and directs people in the Bible to find answers to those. And you'll start to find some of those similar answers, whether it's finding a spouse or, or looking at what type of, of job you should, you should look at, what type of uh, industry you might be able to work in. Now, sometimes you end up saying, should I get the green dress or the blue dress? Yeah. I, this is not something that you probably need to spend a, a great deal of prayer time in. It's, it's a blue dress or it's a green dress. Maybe I haven't bought dresses yeah, recently yeah, and maybe you blue dress and green dress dresses is just a big thing that I'm not aware of. But the point is some things 
really are not that important in the grand scheme of things. Others, the church that you attend, whether you get baptized or not, who you marry, what you do as an occupation for your life, uh, whether you give your life to Jesus or not, these are big and important questions, and going to the Bible to find His guidance there is going to be really important. Okay, so I've gone to the Bible, and I can't find a verse that says you should be a physician, John, or you should be a truck driver, or you should be an occupational therapist or an architect. So I've prayed, I've asked God to lead me, and there are several ways God leads you. He leads you in the Word. He does. He leads you by impressions. Yes. Got to be careful about that, though, because people have been impressed to do some wacky things in the name of God, and then they blame God for their wackiness, and that's not smart. What about the role of people in guiding you to, to God's will? That is an important one as well. As you're going to different people for advice, and there's nothing wrong with going to people for advice, subject to what God's will is, he's, as he states it in his word and, and his impress with the Holy Spirit, then ask yourself the question, is this person a good person that I should go to? Is their life in line with God? Or are they making some some poor decisions in their lives, maybe that's not the person that I want to go and, and get information or help from. Ultimately, the Bible is to be your guide, but God can impress you. He won't impress you contrary to the Word of God. He can use other people to guide you. He won't use other people to guide you contrary to the Word of God. But if you pray and you read your Bible and you tell God, I really need to know and I really want to know, it's God's job to tell you, to reveal to you. Why? Because God is God, and He has promised that He would lead us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your path. God has directed your path to watch line upon line today, and we're glad He may direct you to send us a question. And if He does, here's the email address that we'd like you to use. Lineuponline at IIW.org. Lineuponline at IIW.org. And we'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. It was like a ticking time bomb just waiting to explode. And when it did, a city was plunged into chaos. A town was completely destroyed. More than 300 people were left dead and thousands left homeless. It remains one of the nation's least known atrocities, yet it was one of the most destructive race riots in United States history. Join It Is Written on location in Tulsa, Oklahoma for Black Wall Street as we look at the problem of evil. We'll investigate the destruction of a community and ask some searching questions. How can this happen? And who would do such a thing? How do good people commit truly wicked acts? Black Wall Street will take you there, to the very streets where evil reared its ugly head in a way not often seen. Don't miss Black Wall Street on It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, where we are taking your Bible questions and finding some biblical answers for you. The next question that we have comes from Glenn, and Glenn asks, how old was Isaac when he was offered as a sacrifice? Yeah, good question. The Bible doesn't tell us, but the Bible gives us some indicators. Now, it, it says, depending on the version you read, it says, I and the lad will go and offer sacrifice. Or how old's a lad? Lad's not very old. Uh, lad's like 9, 11, 12, uh, 15. 
But that word lad does not have to be translated young boy. It can be translated in other ways as well. So how do we go about understanding about how old he may have been? Well, we take a look at some of the things that he did. He carried a load of, uh, of sticks, the, uh, the wood with him, as he was heading there to the place of sacrifice. They also had a journey that was, uh, was not just a mile or two away. It was a little hike. It was a hike indeed. And so he wasn't taking a toddler. He wasn't taking an eight-year-old on this hike. And he wasn't asking the eight-year-old to carry a load of wood for quite the distance. So we're going to surmise here, based on study, based on observation, what are we surmising? Maybe somewhere between the ages of 18, 20, something along those lines. That's a guesstimate, but, but maybe in the right direction. One of the most amazing things about the story, I, it, I, it gets me every time. So Abraham was a great man of faith. God said, go over there and sacrifice your son. And Abraham said, okay, I'll do it. You'll Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. Yikes, laying it on thick there, God. And Abraham says, I shall. That's real faith. Later in the Bible, it says that Abraham figured that God was able to raise the boy back from the dead. So this wasn't like heathenism. He really believed that should he do this at the behest of God, God would give him his son back. But as great an act of faith as it was on the part of, of Abraham, think about the faith of Isaac. Isaac was strapping, young. He was probably very healthy if how he old, took all that. How old was his dad? His dad was, was a whole lot older. He was, a, he was 100, 100, 100, 100 plus years old. He was an old man, still clearly somewhat strong and somewhat capable. But imagine the faith. Imagine, the, imagine if your dad said, well, if you would just come with me for a walk, son, I'm going to sacrifice you. What would you do? You'd have to have an immense amount of trust in and love for your father and faith in God to believe that this wasn't the craziest thing that you have ever heard. Great faith, faith on the part of Abraham and very real faith on the part of Isaac as well. That is quite the story. Powerful story. We have another question here. This one's coming from Brian. And Brian asked the question, did Jesus have any brothers? Brian? Jesus had brothers. And if you read through the Bible, they're named as James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. It appears they were older brothers for some reason, or some reason, several reasons. One is they taunted Jesus later on in Jesus' life, and that was probably bigger brothers rather than little brothers. I know I just said probably. We don't have clear statements. If we did, you probably wouldn't be asking the question. And at the same time, Jesus committed the care of his mother to John and not to his brothers. If they were younger than Jesus, they'd have been around. They were older, and so perhaps their life, their family, their age, their state of health wasn't conducive to minding their mother, um, Mary, or who actually might have been their stepmother. Because yeah. it seems that they were probably what? Probably children of Joseph's from maybe a, a prior marriage or something yeah. like that. That's what it seems. So understand that as you ask these questions, some of them we answer by permission and not by command. Uh, but it, it very definitely is that Jesus had brothers, likely stepbrothers, more than likely older. But really a good question. Thank you. I have one for you, Eric. Chris asks, when will Jesus' feet touch the ground? And he is referencing Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. In Zechariah 14, verse 4, the Bible does say that Jesus' feet touch the ground. But when you take a look at what the, how the Bible describes Christ's second coming, that is the coming that's in the very near future for you and for me, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, let's take a look at what that has to say. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? In the air. In the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he concludes that particular chapter with, therefore comfort one another with these words. So when Christ comes back the second time, the Bible makes it pretty clear his feet do not touch the ground. We are caught up to meet him in the air and he takes the righteous up to heaven. Except there is coming a time when Jesus will come back and his feet will verily touch the ground. And this is what he's asking us about. It involves the Mount of Olives. It does. And that's what Zechariah wrote about. So when will Jesus' feet come down, touch the ground, cause the Mount of Olives to become a great plain? When you take a look at the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, chapter 20, you find the millennium. The millennium is a thousand-year period that begins with Christ's second coming, and it ends with what we might call Christ's third coming. Yeah, yeah. Now, now as we say that, we're just coining a phrase here, descriptive, not trying to start anything, but when Jesus comes back again after the millennium. At the end of the millennium. So during the millennium, when Christ, at the beginning of the millennium, Christ catches the righteous up to meet him in the air, goes to heaven with them for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he comes back again, that is at the end of the millennium, that is when his feet touch the Mount of Olives. It splits apart, the holy city descends, and uh, we have a, a very sobering picture of what happens shortly after that with the wicked being resurrected and going up to try to take the city. Yeah, amen, good question, good answer. Thank you very much. Here's a question from Pranith. Was Christ in the grave for 72 hours, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? Good question. When you take a look at the time period that Jesus was in the grave, it's described in several different ways in the Bible. He was there for three days and three nights. It says he rose within three days. He rose on the third day, after the third day. So several different word descriptions of when Jesus rose again. No matter how finely you slice all of those descriptive terms, you can't get them all to, to depict an exact 72-hour period of time. So what was Jesus on about? He said, he, he talked about uh, as uh, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for that same period of time. So was he saying... 72 hours, not a second less and not a second more. Not, not the emphasis that he had whatsoever. No, so what was he really driving at there? What he's driving at is, what are you looking for? Are you going to guide or allow your experience to be guided by signs? Uh, signs are not the important thing. What he wanted to do was to help us to understand the importance of the fact that he was going to rise again. Yeah, amen. That's what it was. He was going to rise again. And if we could remember that, that the grave wasn't going to hold Jesus, that's the key point. You know what we do sometimes? We stretch texts to breaking point and we want to seize on a certain something. This is why people say, oh, Jesus didn't, wasn't crucified on Friday. He had to be crucified on Wednesday night because three full 24-hour periods. And, and if that's your belief, you know, I, I still respect you, but can't agree with you. Uh, having said that, though, it, it probably doesn't mean that we can't be friends. Why do we believe Jesus was 
crucified on Friday? A couple of reasons. One, because the day after Jesus was crucified was the Sabbath. And if he was crucified on a Wednesday night, the day after Wednesday night is Thursday night. And so there wasn't any Sabbath involved at all. Uh, so that's one. And there's something called inclusive reckoning. And you see this. Uh, it's, a, it's a Jewish way of looking at things, but you also see it in society as well. I have a friend who was, who was imprisoned for eight days or something like that. So he, he, he was put in prison on, let's just say, Monday night. And then there was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And at 10 past midnight on Monday morning, they let him out. Eight days. It was really only eight, eight, what are, uh, eight, it was really only six days and 20 minutes or something. But he had credit, but both of those part days were looked at as whole days. They counted as days. Yeah. And with Jesus at his death, part of Friday, all of the Sabbath, Saturday, and part of Sunday, three days and three nights. It's a figure of speech. So uh, the emphasis is on resurrection, that Jesus would go into the earth and he would come out. The grave wouldn't be able to hold him. And we say, amen and hallelujah. Okay, we got another question? We do. This okay. one comes from Judy. And Judy says, if we are married now, will we stay married in heaven? Oh, good question, Judy. It, it, we don't have a lot of time to answer your question, which is too bad because this sort of question might in some cases take a little, a little delicacy. Because there are some people who say, oh my goodness, if I can't be married to this lovely person in heaven, then why on earth would I want to go? And I can't imagine myself being happy I can tell you this, whatever marriage is here on earth, God has something better in heaven. He's not going to say, when you get to heaven, you were so happy. I bet you're disappointed to be here and that you can't have exactly the same things as you had on the earth. How do we understand this? The Bible's really, really clear. What would you say? Jesus says that you're going to be like the angels in heaven. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. So we would tend to understand the best relationship that two people can have one with another here on earth is the relationship that we call marriage. But do you think that the relationship that angels have one with another in heaven, in that perfect place, is a step up relationship-wise to what marriage is down here or a step down? It would seem that we are trading up there. In fact, sadly, in this, in this world, some marriages are, they fall a little short of God's ideal. Yeah, there'd be some people who are like, oh, if we're married in heaven... I'm not sure I want to go because my marriage is such a catastrophe here on the earth. God's going to give you better. The Bible is clear. Some Sadducees came. They tried to trip Jesus up. Oh, a woman ended up marrying seven fellows because each time she got married, the husband died. She kept marrying the brother, the brother, the brother, the brother, the brother, and so on. So, ha, ah, Jesus, who's she married to in heaven? And they thought that they were tricking Jesus. And he said, you don't understand. There isn't marriage in heaven like there is here on the earth. Don't be disappointed by that. Be glad because whatever Heaven is, is better, is better. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure you can't imagine better. You think, oh, it couldn't be better than being married to my husband. And some people heard me say that and say, oh, I could, it's quite the opposite in my case. Aren't you glad that when we get to heaven, it's everything is going to be better than what we have here on the earth? Thank God for that. And thank you for that. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us here today, Eric. Really appreciate Great it. Great to be here once again. Appreciate seeing you. Please remember that if you have questions to get to us, you can email them to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. And God willing, we will do our very best to give you a Bible answer for your Bible questions. And please be sure to tell somebody about Line Upon Line. There is somebody that you know and care about who needs to hear the Bible explained in a way that they can grab hold of and say, aha, 
this helps. I hope you've been able to say, aha, this helps. And I hope you'll see us again next time for more on Line Upon Line.